Alright, hello everybody, welcome back to BSF Lecture Series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. Today, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 7, the final portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches us about the role of wisdom in creating a humble spirit of deep discernment. We know that discernment and wisdom is something we all need because we know how foolish and sinful our thinking, our actions, and behaviors can become with the little tiny shifts and compromises that we make following uh, people and attitudes of this world. But before we get into the uh, lecture talk for today, just wanted to share with you a very important reminder and announcement. The website where you get all your materials for BSF and access this lecture talk will be completely revamped and replaced uh, in coming weeks, starting from November 22nd to December 7th. And they're going to replace it with a new improved mybsf.org in December. In order for the millions of files to be transferred over, however, the current site has to be shut down for two or three weeks during the data transfer and testing period. So um, we do have an alternative site for you, but we want to have you download that in advance. What you need to download are lessons 10 through 13. And uh, if you forget to do it or you haven't had the time to do it um, in coming days, we will have those materials available for you on our San Francisco website at BibleSF.com. So if you go to BibleSF.com, we'll have the lecture questions and the docs as well as links to the lecture talk for every week until they have successfully migrated the MyBSF.org page. And um, you'll find the talk linked to the YouTube page from BibleSF.com. So you want to go there in case you need to have those documents and also to access the lectures for the week. All right, so let's begin our talk for today. The big idea for this chapter is godly discernment gives guidance for personal life and spiritual growth. Godly discernment gives guidance for his personal life and spiritual growth. And the focus verse for uh, this week is taken from Matthew 7, 12, where Jesus says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Our two divisions that we start off with here are godly wisdom is grounded in humility, verses 1 to 12. And then the second division is godly wisdom is built on relationship with God, verses 13 to 29. So let's begin. You know, recently uh, at the university where I teach, we started a new department in entrepreneurship uh, within the business school, which is a more specialized view of managing business at its founding. At the beginning where uh, one has to problem solve new solutions, look outside the box and develop a lean, cost-effective managerial style that can help uh, an innovative idea or product or service take flight. The new, de the new department was a serious project that the university president was also deeply invested in. He was eager to get it up and running as quickly as possible. So before we even had our own building, a small group of new professors were selected to join this team and recruit new students into the major. There was a lot of excitement, of course. There's a lot that goes into developing uh, the software behind it. And by software, I mean uh, things like the curriculum, uh, thinking about what kind of culture we want, the policies and procedures of a new department. It is very much like writing a business plan where you have to explicitly explain your mission and vision, your objectives and purpose, 
and really clearly define, you know, organizational programs and processes to get to our goals. Then on top of that, we had to think about what our ideal student would look like. The mindset we were all united by, the traditions and customs we would implement to develop our culture and bond our relationships. Once you have a vision, it was easy to think about our building project um, and how it would need it to be architected or structured. I helped design the building and really enjoyed the process such that it became really um, another hobby of mine that I, I really relished. I enjoyed envisioning how our community would flourish and live in this new building as we studied entrepreneurship for years to come uh, in a lovely space of classrooms, labs, big atriums where students can speak on stages and pitch their ideas, and then uh, a beautiful corner where there was a canteen coffee bar and a kitchen. Well, when another new department tried to do the same thing that we did, it didn't go so well, even though they had more money and a huge building complex given to them. They didn't think about the principles that would conform their minds to the reality of their discipline, so that even as they have this amazing, spectacular building, the people working in it were generally lost, without focus, and pretty much did their own thing. So the lesson we learned is that even with the affairs of creating a strong organization, software, so the elements that changes people's thinking and conform them to the mission at hand, is actually more important than the hardware, meaning those things which encompass the building and the equipment and the hard assets. It is usually a bad software that can actually devastate a company. So we commonly think Moving into a new house can change our family problems or give us a fresh new start. But we know from experience that a house doesn't change people at their core. It might help us feel better, but the underlying issues of who we are at the heart are the same and unchanged, and therefore the problems follow us into our new environments. Jesus, as our Creator, knows that we need a heart change if we are ever to live fully into His kingdom. Heaven cannot change you. In fact, heaven is really a relationship more than anything else. The joy of heaven arises from the joy of an intimate and close relationship shared with the Lord that gets reflected into our relationships with everyone else. That's why the Bible never really attempts to describe heaven, because that's not any, anywhere near the most interesting thing to say about heaven from God's perspective. At the end of chapter 6, he told us that our highest priority is to seek God's kingdom. There is no greater satisfaction that could be known. And so now in chapter 7, he's going to take us even more uh, deeper into practical aspects of the kingdom. How do we navigate life in a way that pleases God? How can we live the way Jesus has described here? And uh, what it boils down to is how can we gain godly wisdom? And how can we live in a godly way? We cannot do it on our own. We know God gives wisdom to those who simply seek him to seek the truth. Godly wisdom flows from God's Spirit and leads us to exercise humility and discern truth. So we have the two divisions that you saw. The first division, again, reminding you 1 to 12 is godly wisdom is grounded in humility. And the second division, 13 to 29, is godly wisdom built on relationship with God. So here's something to reflect on as we start. People who have godly wisdom are humble. Jesus explains through specific ways that godly wisdom is built on humility. Humility is really just having a proper view of myself, oneself, in relation to God and others. Humility makes a huge impact. 
on our relationships with others. The first way, the first example here, we see Jesus calls us to humility and judgment, and that in verses 1 through 6. You know we are sinners, and we, we as sinners in a broken world surrounded by and interacting with other sinners can get very messy. The impulse when someone does something wrong is to make a quick snap judgment and to also tear them down. Tearing another person down is a form of condemnation. It starts with a very small spark of pride within us. And you know as well as I do, we naturally default to a self-righteous and uh, attitude and a sense of superiority without even realizing we're doing this. It rises in us so subtly that it's often much later we fully realize our part in someone else's ruin, pain, and hurt. So what does godly wisdom look like when we're dealing with the sins of others? Godly wisdom gives us a realistic and humble view of ourselves that prepare us to extend grace to other people even while we are standing on the truth. So in verse 1-5, to Jesus calls us to examine ourselves before judging others. The passage says the standards that you impose on others will be applied to you. Let's read verse 1-2. to Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The start of this chapter helps us to think about our first principle. Godly wisdom helps believers exercise grace in the spirit of humility. Jesus is speaking against a proud, self-righteous dismissal of others without first a humble self-examination and a sense of our own vulnerability to sin. This does not mean that believers should never exercise discernment or wisdom or uphold accountability. No, we are called to do that within the body of Christ, and we are not to look on other, uh, others, uh, our Christian brothers and sisters, who have fallen into sin and just ignored, or even failed to recognize the sinfulness that pervades our society. Much of this is done in community to address these problems, with a desire to help our brothers recover and to be restored into spiritual relationship with God and back with the church. The church is to be a loving community where people can help each other grow further into purity and maturity and obedience to Christ. You know, we live in a world where we're afraid to label anything as sinful, but to do this well, it absolutely requires godly wisdom on our part to be self-reflective first before we look out into the world. He tells us that the same measure of judgment that we apply to others will be also applied to us. There is no room for do as I say, but not as I do. That's hypocrisy. We have to deal with our own sin before we deal with the sins of others, which is in verse 3 to 5. In the process of self-examination and reflection on our own struggles, something strange happens. That strange, wonderful thing is that we find some light comes into our hearts. An understanding of our own failings bring a greater capacity to understand another person's struggle and difficulty with sin. And it reminds ourselves of our own utter dependence on Christ for our own restoration and new life in himself. So it says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in the brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Humble self-examination must come first. Why try and remove a speck of sawdust from someone else's eye when you fail to recognize and ignore the plank and the flaws and the glaring things that are in your eye, which will make you look ridiculous? 
to the very person that you're trying to help. When we are able to see things clearly, things before us become illuminated, enlightened, such that we are changed by what God shows us. Spiritual truths come to light, and revelation and spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment sets in. But we must show discernment to those we share the wisdom of God with. Uh, so we don't just go about sharing what we've learned and asking them to take note of those lessons uh, without them understanding and come to a place of humility before God themselves. So it says, the next few verses, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces too. You know, sharing spiritual truth with others requires preparation, requires humility and godly wisdom and discernment that God gives. So this can't be just given to anyone. And oftentimes, people may not understand what you're talking about if they are not in a place of humble submission before God. Just as you would not throw pearls into a pig lot or give sacred things to vicious dogs, be wise about sharing your spiritual discernment from your life with God to those who wouldn't understand a thing about where or how that wisdom applies into their own life. And their life actually might be diametrically opposed to God and His ways. The discernment of the Christian walk will seem foolishness to the unbelieving mind, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he says, The message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. So it is important to consider how you share, what you share, and with whom you share it. If someone doesn't know Jesus, they will not value the deep truths of Scripture. In fact, they may even mock the deep and precious truths that provide stability to your own heart and soul. So what does this mean for us practically? Do we withhold truth from people who do not believe? How then do we share the gospel? And if we are afraid that those pearls of eternal truth will be trampled and forsaken, does this mean we never share the truth unless someone openly is receptive? No, of course not. We help argue and prepare the ground for their understanding. We don't just go into it spilling the truths, but we prepare them and help them in convincing words and conversations, entering into the lives and community and fellowship with non-believers to introduce the wisdom of God and hoping that their hearts and minds would be further open to the gospel of truth that will transform their lives. We cannot force believers, uh, I'm sorry, non-believers to wear our Christ-centered values when they are most precious for us to be adorned with. See, these jewels given by God were for us to wear. Instead, believers are to cherish the wisdom of Christ and wear those pearls of God's wisdom enjoyably in our own lives. We live into them so that they appear brightly and beautifully, so that by our own adornment from God as His brides, others can see the holy spectacle of God's truths made beautifully evident in our lives. If the values of Christ were forced on non-believers, we know what happens. They would get twisted and perverted, denigrated, and maybe misapplied. When believers teach, for instance, the sanctity of all human life, even the unborn child, the unbeliever would say, well, any sanctity of life value must preserve my primacy to my individual choice that God gave me. And those choices are sanctif uh, sacred and cannot be um, taken away from me. Any saving that needed to be done for that aborted child, 
God's going to take care of it and he, uh, the baby will be in a better place. You know, that kind of thinking is twisted logic from a carnal, self-oriented, self-centered mind that cannot relinquish itself from one's uh, self-will. As difficult as our interactions with others in the world can become, Jesus teaches us to pray and bring all matters of our efforts uh, as a concern that we can share with Him. Humble prayer reveals dependence on God, taken from verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. We cannot judge well on our own. We cannot discern truth from error without God's help. Our prayerfulness actually reveals how much we depend on God. We ask and God answers. There's a promise in James 1.5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, as we all do, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You know, God delights for his children to seek him and his wisdom to make sense of all from higher divine perspective. He is generous in giving us wisdom when we ask. In fact, verse 9 through 11 tells us that humble prayer reveals the right view of God within our framework and thinking. It says, which of you, if a son asks for bread, would give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? When we humbly and regularly seek God in prayer, we acknowledge who he is as our shepherd and king. When we start praying, we suddenly remember that we are not facing problems and obstacles by ourselves, alone, with nothing to guide our way. We realize instead that he is central, that he is with us in our circumstances and able to live into the true state of things. He is a good, good father who delights to give good gifts to those who ask. He always has the best in mind for us. He's kind. God, our Heavenly Father, the Creator, the Sustainer of all things, is a personal God who knows and cares about our needs much more than we ever think uh, He does. He listens when we pray. He understands the deepest issues behind what we ask, even if we don't understand those things clearly ourselves. So conversely, a failure to seek God reveals a wrong view of Him. I hope you can see that. We reveal, uh, when we fail to pray, that we think he's not interested, that he's uninvolved in the world, he doesn't care about my life, he's too busy to care, too distant to do anything, and that is not a right picture of God the Father. Sometimes our image of God as our Father can be distorted by our experience, possibly with sinful earthly fathers. As we pray and live wearing the spiritual adornments God gives us to wear before the world, God calls us to demonstrate the fruits of our spiritual relationship by engaging in humble demonstrations of love to other people proactively. So we are wired, in a sense, to naturally seek, promote, and uh, protect ourselves, but God is calling us away from that. In fact, a lot of our efforts every day go into caring for our wants, our needs, and our likes, and our preferences, and supporting our opinions and our comfort. And so we are called to mirror, instead, the very heart of Christ himself, and he is the giver. He's the one that makes the difference that the world sees. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. So Jesus calls us to travel the unpopular road. 
In verse 13 to 14, Jesus knows we have a tendency to follow the crowd and take the road most uh, often taken, uh, where the entry is large and prominent and the road is a large boulevard. There's a book uh, called The Wisdom of Crowds, and it says, it, it observes that given the uncertainties of life, the choice of large numbers of people will likely be more right than your own individual choice. But what that book doesn't take into account is the most certain fact of God's clear and specific direction that is right. And that in this case, having to do with eternal destiny is the most absolutely correct. God is always absolutely right, and the opinions of crowds have no say in what God has in store. No understanding of the future. We have to be careful to be on our guard in the temptation to follow the easy way of crowds and their crowd estimations, the crowd perceptions, and what is popular in our culture. Whole cities and cultures have gone in this way of following their the most popular views and perceptions and, and fallen into ruin by their collective re rejection of God's warnings, even as God sent them holy prophets to lead them aright a, a and, and to give them a clarity and an opportunity to repent and change their ways. So principle number two is godly wisdom enables true disciples to discern God's truth. Jesus tells us in verse 15 to 20, that what we should look for is not quantity, but quality. What you can discern between the true prophets and false prophets from the nature of the fruit that is produced is that good prophets, true prophets, bear good fruit. Verse 17 tells us that good tree bears good fruit and bad tree bears bad fruit. And just in case there's any confusion, verse 18 goes further to tell us that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So clearly true and false prophets are mutually exclusive. It's very clear, black and white. Discerning the fruit, you can discern the prophet 100%. So that begs the question, how do you discern fruit? Well, the fruit of prophets are disciples, so we can discern the disciples that they teach and that they bear. And we know those disciples and the prophet himself would be resembling themselves after Jesus. If you know the character and the person of Jesus from your own study of scripture, you know that his disciples reflected him and we are to reflect Christ as well. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there are other fruits we know from the teachings of Jesus that when a person follows them, he is one also sharing the very words of Jesus into other people's lives. In verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it is remarkable that false prophets and teachers can so successfully enshroud themselves with the appearance of being godly, but actually are counterfeit and a sham. Again, looking at the sensational things uh, is like following the crowd into that uh, large gate and the broad boulevard, uh, mindlessly without inquiring and thinking of God himself. This is surprising given that they seem to be doing such good works of righteousness, such as prophesying in God's name, casting out demons, and performing many miracles. 
that seems to indicate a relationship with God, but it is clear from here that they are satanic works from the father of lies, and they're being used in a manner to be showy deception to lead people astray. It's a natural assumption to make that they may be coming from God, but Jesus is clear here that the demonstration of spiritual power is not to be used as a sign of their belonging to God. Do their words indicate that their actions point to God? No, they're pointing to themselves or something else. A true spirit of repentance and submission to Christ will not be the central message of false prophets. That's what true prophets point us to. If you know the lives of true prophets in the Bible, they don't want attention. They don't draw attention to themselves. They're busy taking a step back and letting God be magnified and more fully understood. They're teaching from the scriptures. True disciples, their words and actions don't point to themselves. They point others to God. When the actions and words of someone causes us to say, wow, this person is amazing, when we should be really careful at that point because what we really should be thinking and saying is, your God is amazing. This is what happened in Daniel's case when he performed the miracle of interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, to which Nebuchadnezzar responds by falling prostrate before Daniel and exclaiming, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Not only do they point to Jesus with their actions, but they point to Jesus under any circumstances, no matter how adverse. Because unlike those that appeal to their own actions, just like we just read of the false prophets, those of true faith don't rely or point to themselves. They point to Jesus. They rely on God and his wisdom. And this takes us to our last segment of this chapter, where Jesus explains the difference between those that are wise and those that are not. In verse 24, Jesus defines a wise man that hears the word and puts them into practice. We might call this approach God's way. On the flip side, the foolish man hears the words of Jesus and doesn't put them into practice, and that's his way. It's my way. It's versus God's way. Jesus tells us that God's way will withstand every adversity and calamity because its foundation is built on a solid rock, whereas those that chose my way will falter. And so we can discern disciples of true faith, because even in adverse difficulties, and you can be sure, even you will see Christians have difficulties too. And we're not impervious uh, to difficulties in life just because we belong to God. You will see that they will continue to point others to Jesus regardless, like Daniel had done to King Nebuchadnezzar and the uh, royal uh, court uh, under his rule. They are compelled to draw people to Jesus Christ and not to themselves. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, their streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on a rock. So, on what is your life built on? Are you noticing some instability and movements, some sense that your faith is shaking during hard times that make you question your own foundations? What areas of your life do you need to bring before the Lord for Him that haven't been completely yielded and open for His work to be done perfectly, to be done lovingly, as He continues to make you into His disciple as well? So may the Lord bless you in opening up your heart more fully to Him, for Him to draw you to be a full and complete 
perfect example and disciple for him in the world. May God bless you.